Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Bob Hoffman. With the tenacity and bite of a bulldog, Bob calls out industry bullshit with his acerbic wit, no more so than in his highly popular Ad Contrarian blog. The author of four Amazon number one selling books about advertising, Bob's commentary has appeared in the likes of BBC World Service, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times and Forbes. He is also one of the most sought-after international speakers in the industry. Bob says, I like to undermine the credibility of advertising aristocrats. My job is to make marketers uncomfortable. So it's with a mix of huge excitement and a smidgen of trepidation that I say, welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, Giles. Good to be here. Seven quick-fire questions, Bob. Mac or PC? Mac. Book or Facebook? Book. Independent or network? Independent. Ritson or Sharp? Both. Good ideas or high-octane solutions that supercharge opportunities for growth? Good ideas. Efficiency or effectiveness? Effectiveness. And lastly, Zuckerberg or Trump? Suicide. oh brilliant right uh, Bob um, can you tell us what your what your first job your first ever job was and how you started in advertising okay well my first ever job actually my first two ever my first three ever jobs were not in advertising my first job was as a kid I worked in my father's dry cleaning shop I worked on Saturdays and holidays and summers while all my friends were out having fun. I was in the back of a dry cleaning store where it was 150 degrees and smelled like dry cleaning fluid. It was disgusting. I hated every minute of it. But that was my first job, and I did that from about the time I was 9 or 10 until I uh, went to college. Then uh, after college, I was a teacher. And I taught for about three years. I was the world's worst teacher. I, I was not good. Uh, you know, teachers are really special, wonderful people. They're patient and they're nurturing. And I'm neither page, patient nor nurturing. So I was, a re- I was a really bad teacher. What did you teach? I taught science mostly. But uh, I also taught, a, you know, I taught a little uh, English. I taught a little um, what we called social studies, which was like history and civics, you know. Uh, but mainly I taught science. I, I even taught a little math. Um, and uh, it's amazing that I taught that stuff because I don't know it at all. But nonetheless, 
you don't have to teach to know. Apparently, I was uh, I was asked to teach at Stanford. Right, I taught a class at Stanford University. I couldn't get into Stanford University if I had ten lifetimes, but I could teach there. <laughs> right, unbelievable. I think I'd struggle to open the door. Yeah. Then I uh, after. My failed teaching career, I uh, ran into a friend of mine from college, uh, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was working in advertising. And I had no idea what that meant. I said, what, what, what do you do? He says, well, you know the TV commercials you see? So yeah, he says, I write them. And uh, it had never occurred to me that civilized people actually sat down and wrote those things. But I said, wow, that's interesting. He said, yeah, you'd be really good at that, too. I said, really? What do I have to do? So he told me what to do. And he got me uh, he got me an appointment with uh, a headhunter. And I went to see her. And she told me I would never work in advertising because the stuff that I showed her was terrible. But I, uh, I had decided that I was going to do that. So I, um, I I got any writing job I could get. And the first one I got was writing adult fiction. And you know what that means. And uh, I did that for one day. I got hired to write adult fiction. I did it for one day. The thing was you had to write a book a week, right? And it had to be 150 pages. So you had to, you had to write 30 pages a day and you got a dollar a page. And uh, I can't type 30 pages a day, no less write 30 pages a day. So uh, I did it for one day, and then I uh, I quit. And um, I told the guy who was the publisher, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not coming back. And he called me up and he said, you know, I read your manuscript last night. It was really good. I said, my manuscript? Uh, anyway uh yeah so i couldn't do that but you know i in one day i used everything i knew about sex and i you know (laughs) i was out of material so i couldn't continue doing that but it it was uh it was an interesting day it was um the 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 the, uh place where i worked was in greenwich village in new york city and it was up on like uh I think it was around 6th or 7th Avenue and 4th Street in the village. It was up above a gym, a gymnasium. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I was there with people, the likes of which I had never met before, you know. And just that one day was interesting to see these people. Anyway, uh, but once I got the idea that I was going to be a writer, I kept searching. and I finally found a job and I got hired at Panasonic, which is an electronics company. I think it's called National, maybe, in the UK. But anyway, they're a big electronics company, and I worked in their advertising department for two years, uh, writing uh, lots of different kinds of stuff. And then, uh, so that was my first advertising job. And then I moved out to San Francisco and got a job at an ad agency there. And I, di- I didn't know anything about ad agencies because I had worked in-house at Panasonic. And um, so I just went to the Yellow Pages, and the first ad agency I found began with an A. And I went over there, and they hired me. And, uh, <laughs> and so I, I worked there for a number of years. I was, you know a junior copywriter, but 
it wasn't a very good agency. You know, it was an agency that did like industrial advertising and agricultural advertising. And um, I got there and I think I brought, you know, like a wise guy New York attitude to what was a very kind of staid and um, proper agency. And uh, we started to do well. We started to get some good accounts. And I got promoted to be creative director after a few years. And then later on, I was promoted to uh, president of the agency. And uh, after, uh, you know, after about 15 years or so, I mean, maybe it was 15 years, we, um, we had grown to be the largest independent agency in San Francisco. That only lasted a little while because then Hal Riney came along, who was like totally brilliant and started his own agency and they shot by us in a second. But for a while, we were the largest independent in San Francisco and we, we were bought by a, um, a, a, an Australian company called Mojo, which was a publicly traded company. And, um, I became CEO of their U.S. operations. U.S. operations meant an office in San Francisco, an office, a small office in Houston, and a couple of people in New York. It wasn't really much of an operation. But anyway, uh, I lasted there a couple of years. It wasn't really my thing. I'm not the corporate kind of you know publicly traded company guy. And I didn't really get along well. You know, I tried, but I just didn't get along well. And I left there after a couple of years. And uh, so uh, I left there and I just did uh, freelance creative work for about three years, which was actually a lot of fun. But I missed the agency environment. You know, I always said that agencies are terrible places to work, but great places to hang out. And I missed the, I missed the hanging out in the agency business. So um, I had uh, gotten a few offers to come back to the uh, agency. Actually, I was, I almost went to work in the movie business as uh, uh, for a big movie studio as the president of marketing for them. But uh, I, I couldn't see myself in LA. It's, you know, something that I don't think would have worked for me. So I decided against that, but I did decide to go back into the agency business after three years or so. And I, I joined another small agency, this one in Oakland, California, and uh, we soon moved to San Francisco and we grew substantially and did very well. And, uh, and then I retired in uh, 2013 and I have been writing and speaking about advertising since then. And uh, so, so to rewind back to being in client side at Panasonic, how, what was that? What was that change like from from there to agency side? Because I know us lot agency side like to kind of assume that we're it, it's easier to do that step than it is from agency to client side, but that's probably just a bit of arrogance. Go. I, I actually had a very different experience than I think most people who went from the client side to the agency side, because I went from a really 
talented client-side advertising group to a not very talented agency group. <laughs> and, and, and the people I worked with at, uh, at Panasonic on the client side were really terrifically talented and smart people. And, and, and when I went to the agency side, you know, I, I don't like to sound arrogant, but I felt like I was the smartest kid in the dumb class. <laughs> That's a good feeling. Yeah. And so I, I don't think my experience is typical, but um, that, that, that's how it was for me. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think, well, certainly from stories I've heard, I don't think that is, um, is typical, but, but clearly it was positive all the same. So, and you, and you, you said you, you felt like a wise guy um, when you went among more kind of staid and, and proper folk. And then given you went through numerous promotions, presumably you ended up being, were you wearing suits? Were you a wise guy in a suit? That must have felt uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I was. I was a wise guy. Actually, I didn't mind, you know, dressing up to go to work. It felt, it, it didn't bother me. You know, now it would bother me. Now I, yeah. I, I don't. <laughs> Since I retired, I don't think I've tucked a shirt in yet. So uh, I've become kind of a slob. But um, in those days, I, I used to like, uh, you know, I, I, here's what it was. I, I came from a background of a very kind of lower middle class. We were always struggling uh, to survive. Uh, my father was got very sick when he was young, and my mother had to take over kind of raising the family and we were always struggling and and I was kind of uh you know it was kind of a rap family and and then I got into the business world and it, it was like a whole thing opened up to me that I never knew about and uh I I felt good about it up until the time I got into the business world into into my first job at Panasonic I was kind of a bum you know, even though I was officially a teacher, I spent a lot of time at the racetrack and in pool rooms. And, uh, you know, I was like, uh, I, I was not an upstanding citizen. I was very undisciplined. Uh, I had very little uh, ambition. And uh, once I got into business and I saw what it was like, it like opened a whole new world to me. And I really enjoyed it from the get go. As a matter of fact, when I when I got my first job at Panasonic, it was in uh, it was in Panasonic building it in New York City, which is a big building on Park Avenue. It's now called the MetLife Building. It's right in the middle of Park Avenue, and I used to go there, and I couldn't believe I was working in some place like this. It was so it, it, it was it was it was a whole whole other universe than I had ever experienced. And I liked it a lot. And I, you know, my first day at work at, uh, at Panasonic, I said, you know, my whole life, I've screwed up everything. I was, you know, I was like 25 years old and everything I touched, I had screwed up. And I said, I am not going to screw this up. I'm, I'm going with this. And I became like a super type A uh, from being like a type Z for my whole life. And um, <laughs> my first day at work, my boss gave me an assignment. He said, uh, you, uh, you need to write this, and uh, this is your first assignment, and here it is, and he gave it to me. 
So that was like at about uh, nine o'clock in the morning. So I came back at like 1130 and I said, okay, here I wrote it. He said, what are you doing? Get out of here. Come back on Friday with this. <laughs> but 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 that's how you know that's how crazy I got. I really didn't want to screw this up, you know. And, my, and did you get a similar feeling when you started to experience uh, being inside an agency from all that kind of creativity that, that you would expect? Admittedly, it wasn't as strong agency as you said. I n- no, I didn't. The the vibe at the agency was kind of laid back. And I, I used to say that I did more work in a lunch hour in New York than I did in a week in San Francisco. I mean, that, that, that was, you know, that was just one person's experience. You can't take that as a generalization, but at the time, that's how I felt. Uh, the, the New York experience was so intense and the San Francisco experience was kind of, you know, the old cliche about laid back California, I don't think it exists anymore, but in those days it was that kind of uh, feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. And then um, you you mentioned retiring in, in 2013. And since then I've heard you say you've been shooting your mouth off since 2013. Yeah. I, I, you know, when I, when I, one of the things about being retired is that you don't give a shit anymore. You don't have to, you, you don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have clients and you don't have to uh, play by the rules. Uh, and it's been very um, refreshing to me to say what I have to say without worrying that I'm going to get fired or that my agency is going to get fired. You know, when you're CEO of an agency, at least when I was, I was very, I had to be circumspect because if I said the wrong thing to a client, we could get fired and, you know, 15 people are going to lose their jobs and it's not going to be me. I'm not going to fire myself. So I, I was always conscious of that. And I knew that, you know, I had a hundred some odd people working for me and they all had families and they had cars and they had mortgages and, and I had to be careful. It wasn't just about me getting on my high horse and shooting my mouth off. I had to, I had to keep in mind that I'm responsible for a lot of people and I had to act responsibly. Now I don't have to act responsibly. I can say whatever the hell I want and I don't care what people think. And uh, it has uh, been fun. I like it. It's really, uh, it's really refreshing, isn't it, to not have to, to not have to give a shit. And, I, and I'm sure that increases with age. I've, I've noticed myself just caring less and less about opinions and, and just unloading more. Yeah. It's, uh, and it, that's, the, that's the other good thing about getting older as well also. There aren't very many good things about getting older. But one of them is... You care less about what people, you, you know, you, you realize that I don't give a shit what this person thinks. What, what do I care? Yeah. You feel, you feel free. You feel free. So, um, I, I love, uh, just quickly, I love media snacks analogy of calling you the uh, Copernicus of, of media. And, it, it, you know, it's because, because you, 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 were, you, you went from being seen as this guy, you know, shooting your mouth off or ranting on the fringes. And then increasingly it's got louder and louder and spread 
more and more widely to arguably become the, the de facto conscience of, of, of the industry. So what's that been like since, what's that, the last six years? Yeah, well, the, um, it, it, it's like, you know, for a, for a long time, I was the imbecile Luddite dinosaur of media, and then I got promoted to the Copernicus of media. It's a nice promotion. And, um, and also, I like it because Copernicus is a fun word to say. I like to say Copernicus. It is nice. Fun. Okay, yeah. And uh, that, which reminds me, I, I'm going to change my name to Giles from Bob. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah, Giles is a great name. It's like a romantic name. You could be, uh, you could be like a, uh, an international man of mystery with a name like Giles. <laughs> with Bob, what are you? Bob, you're just another slob. Giles, you could be like a, a, a secret agent or something. Anyway. I don't know. Bob's good. Bob, I like Bob. It's symmetrical. <laughs> That's the only good thing about it. Yeah. Um, then, uh, yeah, am I the conscience of an industry? No, no. Nobody's the conscience of an industry. I'm just the conscience of myself. But uh, I like to, you know, I hope that some of the things I'm saying resonate with people because I think we are completely unaware of the damage that we are doing in so far as uh, in particular in tracking and surveillance. I think we don't realize how dangerous we are. The, the whole online industry is based on tracking and consumer surveillance, it's very dangerous. It, it, it can lead to tremendous amounts of mischief on the part of marketers, on the part of governments, on the part of hackers. Uh, there is no reason why we need to be uh, spying on people everywhere they go, everything they do. Uh, it is... I think, you know, we know what happens when governments do that, right? We know about the KGB. We know about the Gestapo. We know what happens when governments follow people everywhere they go, know everything they're talking about, know, know everything they say, and have secret files on people. We know that's bad. But we don't know what happens when marketers do that. And that's exactly what marketers are doing now. We, we have files on people. We know who they're talking to. We're, uh, we're reading their emails. We're reading their text messages. Um, we're following them everywhere. And it's very dangerous. It's not necessary. And, and the leaders of the advertising business need to be thrown out and replaced by people who are sensitive, who understand what's going on, who can see what's going on, who see the dangers of it, and 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 have a little understand the need for caution in what we're doing. Uh, I am passionate about this because I think democratic societies are at risk with the amount of information that's being collected secretly and without the permission of citizens. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and one of the, we've got a talented copywriter here who, who, who refers to you as, a, as, as much a figurehead for freedom and democracy now, because 
whilst it's marketing, entirely marketing related, the issues within marketing and advertising have now spilled out completely beyond the confines of the industry and become this massive social issue. So you're looking at democratic institutions, the electoral process, journalism, and it's all, it's all being damaged. That's right. And, and it, you know, the advertising used to be annoying, right? You'd be, you'd be looking at, you'd be watching something, you'd be reading something. There's an ad. Okay. It's a, it's a little annoying, but it's worth it. Cause what I'm getting, you know, I'm getting to watch free television. I'm getting to, you know, I get a, I don't pay much for a newspaper because there's ads in there. I, I listen to the radio for free and it's worth it. I hear the, the, the songs I like for free because there's advertising. So it, it, it's a, it was a minor annoyance. Now, it's a major menace because advertising used to be about giving information to people about about the the, the spreading of information. Now it's about the collecting of information. Online advertising has become about the collecting of information as much as it as it is about the broadcasting of information, and that's not healthy and that's not good. And and we know it's not good. The, the thing that bothers me the most is that we're pretending. We're pretending we don't know this. And we do know it. It's in the newspapers every freaking day. And but but the but the industry goes along pretending we're not doing damage, pretending we're not dangerous. And and uh unfortunately it's gonna require the uh, intrusion of government into this, because we have we have shown very clearly and definitively that we're not mature enough to control ourselves. We're not mature enough. We're not mature enough to say, "Wait a minute, this isn't good." And so it's going to require. I'm, I'm not one who's a big uh, endorser of government intrusion into into people's lives and into business lives, but in this case. It's necessary because we are not responsible enough to do it ourselves. And, and yeah, and it's, it's getting out of control. So, I mean, if we lift the lid on, on this problem, is it primarily tracking and surveillance that you see is, is, is the, the root? That is the, that is the root, yes. And if we, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that are going wrong. There's tremendous amount of fraud. There are all kinds of issues um, now that that we didn't have before uh, before we had the web. There's fraud. There's the devaluation of creativity. There's um, the the I think the the delusion of precision targeting. So there are all kinds of issues that I am interested in in the in the agency business now. But number one is tracking and surveillance. I think that that is the very first thing that needs to be tackled responsibly. Yeah, and, and in fact, you, you talked about the, um, well, in, in your intro to, to Bad Men, which I believe came out in 2017, you talk about Cambridge Analytica there. And, and that must, I think that was about eight months prior to the scandal breaking in, in, in the media. Yeah, it uh, that that was um, that was a moment at which I said to myself, "Okay, maybe you're not crazy." You know, everyone thinks you're crazy. 
uh, and and then and the very first thing I wrote about in the book was you know in the introduction to the book the very first thing I mentioned is Cambridge Analytica and then you know seven or eight months later there it is on the front pages of every uh, newspaper in the world and uh, it you know you, when when you nobody knows for sure anything right so when you're writing stuff and particularly if you're a loud mouth and you're out on a limb and you're writing this stuff you know you think to yourself am i crazy everyone else you know thinks this is fine and you think it's terrible are you crazy or what and when this happened i said okay maybe you're not so crazy so that was uh that that was a moment at which i i i felt good about what i had been doing yeah, and it's so easy to label. I think people label others crazy more so. It's, it's defined more so by whether you're saying something that others aren't as much or probably more so than it is about whether you're right or wrong. Right. You, you label people crazy who don't agree with you. Right? Everyone, who agree, everyone who agrees with you is a genius, and the people who don't agree with you are crazy. That, that's how it works in, uh, in our delusional um, universe that that we live in in our heads and uh actually i'm writing a book about that right now which is uh ah, let's plug it yeah it's, uh, well it, i don't know if this happens to other people who write books but um i was writing this book and i lost the thread of it, it you know i had a whole lot of stuff gathered up together and i and for some reason i lost the thread where is this going and what, what am i trying to say here and for like two or three months, I, I I didn't write anything because I couldn't figure out what I was trying to say. And then like last weekend, I got it. Ah, this is what I'm trying to say. And so um, the, the, the title of the book is The Pretenders. And it's about how we have become pretenders on so many issues and delusional about so many issues that relate to advertising and marketing. And um, it probably won't be done, I'm guessing, maybe the first of the year. If I'm very dedicated, I might be able to get it done by the holiday season. But at least I know where it's going now, which is good. Amazing. And it's not one of your erotic naughty books, is it, Bob? No, it's not. I, I, I gave that up a long time ago. When I when I discovered I'm not as naughty as I thought I was, so yeah. <laughs> um, so, so the other thing we, we loosely touched on there is is ad fraud. So I mean, it's, I mean, does anyone really know what's going on? I think if anyone does, you're likely to know more than many or any. So so what is going on in in those digital shadows? Yeah, it's it's very hard to tell because in order to understand what's going on in the world of of ad fraud. You really have to be either a computer scientist or a software engineer or someone who can get into the code and understand what's happening in the code. That's what I think I have learned. And um, unless you're in the code and can see what's going on in there, you really don't understand what's happening. And so there's a great deal of confusion in the advertising world about fraud because there are so few people who really understand. The, the only thing we know for sure is that ad fraud is massive. And it's huge. 
and it's it's probably stealing tens of billions of dollars from advertisers and marketers. It's no longer just hackers in their mother's basements, uh, you know, stealing $10 here and $100 there. It's, it's organized crime. It's a whole lot of stuff that is growing and that the people who are supposed to be our leaders are hiding. They're either stupid or they're hiding this. I don't know which one. I don't know which one it is. But it's clear that, that, that our leadership doesn't know what's going on. There's a guy named Professor Roberto Cavazzo of the University of Baltimore who studies fraud, okay? And this is a, this is a quote from him, quote, I have studied the economic costs of fraud in many sectors for decades, and I was left stunned by the scale of fraud in online advertising. The problem is people like the ANA in the U.S., the Association of National Advertisers, which is a joke, a total freaking joke, they say that, that fraud is going down. They say that there was $7.2 billion of fraud in, in 2016, I think, and that has gone down to like five point something billion in fraud in 2018. They, they are completely wrong, as far as I can tell, by talking to anyone who is a, who is a, um, a non-interested party in this, who, 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 who the, the people who study fraud without an interest in it and can get into the code and understand it tell me that it keeps growing and growing and growing. Now, do I know this for a fact? No, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a computer scientist. But the people who I trust tell me that uh, that, that is the case. And I can't understand why the advertisers are allowing this to happen. It, it, I mean, I understand why agencies and the ad tech industry and everyone else, because they're making money. It doesn't matter to them if it's fraud. They're still getting their percent of what is spent by the marketers. But the marketers are the ones who are paying the price for this and are pretending it's not happening. And I think it has to do with CMOs, like protecting their turf. I know for a fact that there was one, that, 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 there were, that there was an ad fraud research company that looked into a huge advertising, a huge, a huge advertiser's spending one year and found $600 million in fraud that, that, that they threw away on fraud. And, re- and reported that into the marketing department, and the marketing department never told the CEO, never told the board. Because how do you explain that you're supposed to be an expert on this, and you just pissed away $600 million in a year? So, so I think there is a certain degree of protection that's going on in CMOs. Now, once again, am I sure of this? No. This is just a hunch I have. 
But one thing I'm pretty sure about is that there is a conspiracy of silence in the agency business about what's going on in uh, online advertising. I think people know what's going on uh, in, in agencies and in media agencies. They, they, they know there's so much waste. They know there's so much fraud in, in, in influencer followers who are, you know, enormous amount of fraud in that. But I think there's a, there's a conspiracy of, of silence, of not saying anything. It, how can it be? We, we, we see scandals happening every week. In, in, in the advertising and marketing world, right? We read about it in the newspaper. We read about it in the trade magazines. None of these scandals are ever broken by agencies. None of them. And yet the agencies are the ones who are closest to the digital media. How could they not know what's going on while reporters who have no real... I mean, they're, they're, they're reporting on lots of things. They don't spend all day on online media. How come the reporters know this, but the, ex, the quote, experts on media buying and planning don't know this? It, it, it doesn't pass the giggle test. So I think, I think we know what's going on, but are, uh, but, are, but are keeping quiet about it. At least that's what the evidence that I see tells me. Yeah, that conspiracy of silence, as you put it. And in fact, that, that number, that £600 million or dollars per annum that you've, you've, you've mentioned there, I mean, I've cited that numerous times myself, um, largely from reading from, from your Ad Contrarian blog. In, in preparation for our talk, I actually researched into that a bit more and I was looking at the ad fraud historian and, and various other sources. And it's, and it's believed, although, again, no one can confirm it. Of course they can't. That number's as close to £2 billion per annum now and I think largely the issue is, 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 is in terms of criminal activity it's, it's largely risk-free yeah I mean you if you want to make a lot of money fast go into ad fraud there is essentially no penalty for being caught uh, nobody gets prosecuted for it and uh, there are tens of billions of dollars being made by by crooks by organized crime by terrorists who, who are getting into this and, and, and funding their, their nefarious activities. It's free money if you have no scruples. It's, uh, it's astounding and it's shocking and it's disturbing. And we are doing nothing about it. We, we won't even tell the truth to our constituents about what's going on, no less the public. Yeah, more, more needs to be done. Someone needs to take action. And I think, um, so you and I have talked about this briefly pro uh, previously, and, and you mentioned GDPR being at least some, some attempt in the EU to, to tackle the, the, certainly the privacy side of, of things. But I mean, even that is clearly too early to judge. So I don't want to be too unfair, but it does feel already like we've you know, turned up to an earthquake with a, with a dustpan and brush. Just yeah, I, I, the GDPR was well-intentioned and is well-intentioned, but thus far, what have they done? Zilch. And uh, it's very complicated. The, the GDPR regulations are very complicated. There's going to be litigation about them for years because they're so complicated and there are so many seeming contradictions. But I am hopeful that by the end of this year or early next year, 
there will be some definitive findings that what's happening in terms of tracking, at least, and surveillance is illegal. And that, at least in, in your neck, you know, in, 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 the, uh, in Europe, there will be some sanctions and, and, and stuff will stop. Here in the U.S., there's no, it's the Wild West. There's no, although in California, there's something that's uh, uh, supposed to go into effect at the beginning of next year, which kind of mirrors GDPR, but but the marketing industry and the online uh, advertising media industry has gotten together to try to undermine that by getting the federal government to pass laws that will undermine the more um, restrictive state laws. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. But, the, but the fraud issue, nobody's doing anything about it, essentially. Nobody. Yeah, that's, that's less reassuring. Before we go into our listener questions, you, you, we talked about the devaluation of creativity there. So do you think in part this, the, the kind of uh, obsession or move to things which have significant analytics and automated processes like programmatic, has that obsession with data led to the sacrifice of creativity? The sacrifice of creativity is, is you know, when the history of the advertising business is written, it's that's going to that's going to be the uh, the downfall of the agency industry as we know it. I think we used to be pretty good at something. We were pretty good at making ads. And we could provide businesses with something they all needed, which was imaginative ideas about, about brands, about communicating with the public. But as we got consolidated and as we became publicly traded companies, uh, investors and Wall Street demanded more than we could make by doing good ads. And so, and this is what my book is going to be about. We became pretenders. We pretended we were data specialists and technology experts and business consultants. And um, the more we pretended to be these things, the more we became these things. So you got to be careful what you pretend to be. Today we're, today we're mediocre at a lot of things and good at nothing. Um, we're, and so we're mediocre at being uh, data specialists and technology. And, but as a result of all the money that we've invested in doing these things and the money we haven't invested in our creative chops, we've also become mediocre at making ads, which was something we were pretty good at. And the result is we're, we're, we're confused about who we are and what we do. And it's not healthy for the industry. I think the industry, so we're seeing consultants eat our lunch. We're seeing advertisers go in-house for creative work. This is just an indication that we have devalued creativity as the centerpiece of what we do as advertisers. And there's little evidence, as you've said so yourself very well, to suggest that targeting, which is all a you know, consequence of, of all the tracking that's going on, um, there's little evidence to suggest that leads to, to effective ads anyway. Yeah, there, you know, the, there's very little convincing evidence that all this 
one-to-one personalization tracking stuff is effective as, as, a, as a media strategy. If you think about all the huge brands in the world, all the really successful big brands, the Nikes and the McDonald's and the Coca-Colas and, and uh, you know, the car companies, how were they built? They were built by mass targeting. They weren't built by uh, one-to-one precision targeting. And if you look at the 20 years that we've had online advertising, where are the huge companies? Where are the Nikes? And the and the and the and the apples and the McDonald's and the that have been built by online advertising. There aren't any. We have endemic large brands, online large brands. You know, we have Google and Facebook and but they weren't built by advertising. The advertising played very little part in the building of Google and Facebook and and those kind of companies. And I walk through the supermarket and I look for brands that were built by online average, by, by, you know, one-to-one targeting. And I don't find any. Uh, I can't find any. And so, so what is the evidence that we have to believe that the miracle of precision targeting is real? And uh, I, I don't see it. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see it. I think a lot of that is is probably down to, and it's something I, I increasingly find myself talking about, which is the the signalling around a, a, an ad. And, and so, if anyone is unsure what that is, it's, it's largely the context that an ad is in, isn't it? And 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 in fact, one of my favourite definitions of signalling is yours, and I have used it so many times already on the podcast. So I'll use um I'll use one of Rory Sutherland's instead, just to I say mix it up constantly quoting him but his point is that I mean there's so much trust in 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 sending out messages completely undiscriminately and his his ridiculously trivial yet brilliant example is when we get married we we say our vows in front of all of our friends and family we don't we don't go door to door right. yeah there's a tremendous amount of value in being famous if you're famous if people know you then now there's there's no sure things in marketing. All there are are likelihoods and probabilities. But if you're famous, the likelihood, the probability of success is so much higher than if you're not famous and if you're not well-known. And, and that's, what, that's what mass targeted advertising does. It helps you become famous. Now, there are all kinds of ways to become famous. There's public relations. There's, you know, if the press falls in love, the press fell in love with, with Facebook and with Google and with, and with uh, Amazon. So they didn't have to spend a whole lot of money on that. Now they do. But when they were starting, they didn't have to spend a whole lot of money on advertising because they got famous another way. But that's not, I mean, that's one in a million happen that way. The, the way you get famous generally is mass media. Uh, you know, w- w- online advertising, we all, in online advertising, we all live in our own little digi cocoon, right? I don't know what you're seeing. I don't know if you're seeing the same ads that I'm seeing when you're online. That I'm seeing. But I do know that when I'm watching a football game, 
that there are a lot of people seeing the same ads as I do. And so I can feel confident that when I go out and I buy an iPhone, I'm not doing something really stupid. Uh, and <laughs> people aren't going to think I'm stupid for doing that. Because I know a lot of people think or have been told that an iPhone is, is a smart thing to have. And, that, and, and, and if we think that people don't behave that way, we're kidding ourselves. The social context uh, of, of consumer behavior is very important. And pe- people don't want to be thought stupid by, by having brands that nobody has heard of. And that's part of the psychology of consumer behavior, I believe, whether we like to admit it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And for anyone who isn't sure on um, what Bob's, Bob's uh, wonderful definition of signaling it is, and I've shared it before on the, the podcast at least once, certainly with Lee Davies. And I think, I think I got some of the, the words wrong in that episode. So to correct myself, I walk into a room, I announce that I'm the most hands- the handsomest man in the room. I've said one thing, but communicated another. What I have communicated is that I'm a big jerk. <laughs> That's it. I've always loved that. But, but that whole signaling, the, the whole um, precision targeting thing is, is flawed, if not just if you think about the power of a, of a, of a high-value item. So let's say Aston Martin. I can't afford Aston Martin but me knowing I can't afford one is important to build that brand. Yeah. yeah. So why would, and, but yet they'd never target me if they were making their decision on targeting me with an ad based on my disposable income because I can't afford one. But actually part of that, you know, the, the, the demand around that brand is because people who can afford it know that people who can't like me wish they could. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, advertising, it's not brain surgery. Uh, a lot of it is very obvious, but we have to make it complicated to justify our fees, right? We have to take stuff that uh, we have to pretend we have knowledge and, and we have a certain uh, insight into uh, how, how consumers behave that uh, that justifies us being paid a lot of money. And the truth is, most of consumer behavior is perfectly obvious. People want stuff that looks nicer, that tastes better, that everyone thinks is good, everyone else thinks is good. It's not that complicated. Now, there are, there is, there is a, you know, 10% of consumer behavior is mysterious and, you know, but most of it isn't. Most of it is perfectly obvious. Yeah, I can agree more. I think I'd be a lot richer if I sold some of that shit. But (laughs) so be it. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us asking. So as usual, we've got two questions for you, Bob. Starting with um, Corinne. So Corinne says. Ad blockers remain on the rise. Personally, I see this as a good thing and a strong signal against the state of ad tech. Am I right? No. Um, I'm a hypocrite on ad blocking. And let me explain my point of view on it. I use ad blockers a lot. And I use them because I'm disgusted by tracking. And I'm disgusted by surveillance. And I don't want advertisers tracking me but the big picture is ad blockers are a bad thing because advertising is essential to the health of 
the web. And we, we need advertising to support so many of the things we get for free on the web that we enjoy. I don't think we realize how much of the stuff we get for free from people like Google and Facebook. And I know I'm terribly critical of Google and Facebook for their, for their practices, for their surveillance practices. But I also recognize that they provide us a lot of stuff for free that is useful, that is fun, that we wouldn't otherwise get without them. If they would just stop tracking us and, 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 and ad, what ad blockers do is prevent publishers who are healthy and good and, and, you know, not the Googles and not the Facebooks, but the ones that are reliable and, and doing a good job from getting revenue that they need. And so, like I said, I'm a hypocrite. I think that advertising is essential to the health of the web, but I also think that I use ad blockers a lot because I'm afraid of tracking and I'm afraid of surveillance. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you, Bob, to be honest. Um, I think you're right, though. I think your point's exactly right. And perhaps the rise in ad blockers is merely consumers trying to lash back as slightly at, at what, what has become so, so intrusive. Yeah, and, and, and online advertising has become so horrible. It, 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 there isn't even an attempt to be creative in it. The, the, the nature of online advertising has become direct response. You know, the overall nature of online advertising has become click here now, direct response. And we know that direct response advertising historically has not been what we think of as creative advertising. It, it's been very short-term oriented, and, and we have turned the, the web into a direct response machine. And uh, that, that has created a lot of ugly, annoying advertising, which you and I and, you know, probably a billion and a half other people are, are using blockers to avoid. And that's sad. It, it doesn't have to be that way. No, well, well, here's hoping that we're at least, you know, going to start seeing, seeing some change, albeit um, slower than we'd both like. Um, Will, Will asks, are there any speaking gigs in the UK to, that, that we can look forward to? Unfortunately not. I, I have spoken in the UK five or six times, and I've really loved and enjoyed it. So if there are any uh, conference people out there who are looking for semi-intelligent speakers... Uh, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm happy to uh, to fly over. Actually, I'm going over to Moscow to do a talk uh, week after next, which I'm looking forward oh, yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That should be interesting. Yeah. Ah, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, anyone listening, don't think twice. Get in touch with Bob. Get in touch with him now. Um, so the final part of the interview, then, then Bob, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Number one is advice would you give to your younger self? Okay. The advice I would give to my younger self would be to spend more of my career on the creative side rather than the management side. I went over to the management side of 
the agency business at a fairly early age. And I think I could have been a better creative person if I had stayed in the creative department a little longer. I I always felt that I never really, you know, for me, the creative part of advertising is really the only part that was ever interesting when I was in the age. Everything else to me was torture. I didn't attend meetings or go go to conference. You know, I did all that stuff was torture. But making ads was fun. I liked that, and I wish I had stayed with it earlier. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wish I had stayed with it longer. Uh, I have no one to blame but myself. I was seduced by the uh, beauty, uh, the so-called beauty of management, which uh, turned out to be not as um, beautiful as expected. Mm, okay, that's um, it's interesting to know that. If if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Mm. Infographics. <laughs> I, I, I hate infographics. Get rid of them. They're always misleading. They're everywhere. Yeah, they're always misleading and and simple and uh, yeah, too 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 uh, too too facile. Yeah, let's get rid of infographics. Yeah. And they're meant to make things easier, and sometimes you just scratch your head trying to work the fuckers out. <laughs> right. right. Yes. Uh, number three, then, Bob. Are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Yes, I, I don't read many books about advertising and marketing. I have too much of that rolling around my head already. I don't need more of it. But some things that I would recommend are, uh, in no particular order, "The Anatomy of Humbug" by uh, Paul Feldwick, uh, anything by Dave Trot, "The Choice Factory" by. Um, Richard Schotten, anything by Rich Siegel. Oh, a, a, a book I'd highly recommend is Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Uh, very interesting book. And I'm looking forward to reading, I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to reading Rory Sutherland's new book, which I think is called Alchemy. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that is, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that so so we spoke on that previously and, and my recommendation to you and everyone listening is to get the audio book because rory not only narrates it himself but because it involves rory there's extra content yeah yeah i'll do that um and he gets more royalties so a financial plug there too <laughs> okay. so number four uh bob we always like to dedicate each episode to someone so can you dedicate this to someone and, and explain why yes i'm going to dedicate this to my daughter, Lucy, who's getting married in a few weeks. And, uh, yeah, she's a wonderful girl and, uh, we're very proud of her and, uh, I'm looking forward very much to the wedding. So that, that's my dedication. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. Is the, is the father of the bride speech being recorded? It is. Uh, I'm going to... uh, No, I can't do that. (laughs) This is her show, not mine. Yeah. I'm going to... You know, she's she's a lot like me. She gave me my instructions for my my father of the bride speech. She said, Dad, you stand up and you welcome everyone to the wedding 
then you sit down and shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Those those were her instructions. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'll probably follow her instructions just as assiduously as she's followed mine all these years. (laughs) Payback. Yes, exactly. Uh, Well, um, Huge congratulations to uh, to Lucy and and her partner, and obviously to to you and the rest of the families. That's awesome. So we will dedicate this show is proudly dedicated to Lucy. Yeah. So as a final call to action, everyone listening, you can head over to calltoaction.co where we've shared links to everything discussed in the last hour. So all of Bob's books, um, the Ad Contrarian blog, Everybody Lies, Anatomy of Humbug all of Dave Trott's books, as we, as we typically do in most episodes now. The Choice Factory, uh, Rich Siegel, I forget the name of his book, but I'm, I think he's got one that's just come out, and obviously Alchemy. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. So, uh, Bob, thank you for joining us. As you know, it's been a real uh, personal privilege and, and, and an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much, Charles. It's been a pleasure doing this. Good luck to you and uh, to everyone listening. And thank you to everybody listening. Please continue to share and review. That means a lot to us here. And keep the questions coming in. To get in touch with us, simply find Gasp online or email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try and I try.